This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 83, International Cotton Exposition. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. Before we get started today, I have a few public service announcements that I need to share. Just like last year, I'm going to be taking a little summer break starting tomorrow and returning on Friday, July 3rd. While I'm gone, I'll be releasing my listener Q&A episode, so last chance to send me any burning questions you may have about Atlanta history, podcasting, or just me in general. It was a really hard decision to take this pause because I have had a lot of new listeners lately, um, a lot of momentum, but I also know that it's really important for me to take time out to work on new content, catch up on research, develop new ideas, and also just rest. There's been a lot of side project stuff that I have not been able to even look at or work on, and I just don't want to get to a place where this becomes a burden instead of fun. If you do want to keep learning, I will be publishing mini episodes over at patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. So my patrons there have been so, so very patient as I have completely slacked on my content and I have at least four or five new minis coming out in the next few weeks. Today's episode started out as a combination of Atlanta's three major affairs. And I laugh at myself now thinking I was going to accomplish squeezing them all into 20 minutes or less. I mean, there is an entire book I have just about the race relations of just one exposition. So I don't really know what I was thinking. And here we are. Today we are just covering the International Cotton Exposition held in Atlanta in 1881. The first thing we have to do is pretend we've never seen a computer, television, or heard the radio. Stay with me here. What I'm trying to do is get you to imagine no media. And I notice this when I'm teaching, especially younger kids, about art, and especially when you pick something like a 15th century tapestry. They're looking at this thing like, why is this old dusty carpet a big deal? And I explain it's a big deal because people that would see these in a wealthy person's home were seeing colors and fabrics that they had never seen in their lives. Take this idea into 1880 Atlanta. Where 15 years out of the Civil War, leisure activities include playing cards or board games, bicycling, or sports. Events like regional fairs are a really big deal, and bigger events like the Cotton Exposition would bring in new people, technologies, and food to cities. The United States' first exposition was held in 1876 in Philadelphia, and it celebrated our country's centennial. In the late 19th century, fairs and expositions were used by cities to attract visitors and investors. It was really important to bring business and industry to Atlanta. We had been ravaged by war and the end of our free labor system. I talked about this in the Whittier Mill episode, but when the cotton gin was invented on the Georgia coast, it really changed the game. The yield of raw cotton doubled each decade after 1800. By mid-century, America was growing three-quarters of the world's supply of cotton. And this greatly expanded the use of slavery, and it turned almost every available acre of land into a cotton-growing machine. Even in the post-war world, the South was still producing massive amounts of cotton, which went to all corners of the earth. Northern cotton mills began to explore the idea of opening in the South to minimize transport costs and be closer to raw materials. In 1881, Atlanta's population was less than 40,000 people. Edward Atkinson was a Yankee. He was a cotton mill executive, a former abolitionist, and a leading figure on cotton and the cotton industry. So he wrote an article 
um, in the North, but it was republished all over the country, and it's reprinted in local newspapers here, and he introduces the idea of having a large cotton exposition. Atlanta was on it. In October of 1880, they invited Mr. Atkinson here, and he agreed that Atlanta would be the perfect city. The Constitution's Henry Grady reminded its readers that Northerners viewed the fair as, quote, a national and international project, end quote, and that, quote, no city in the South has ever before had such an opportunity to enlarge its business connections, display its advantages, and add to its reputation, end quote. So now the plans really get rolling. James Nagel and J.W. Reichman, two northern men, ran the Textile Record, which was the only newspaper covering cotton manufacturing, and they toured the northeastern cities, essentially pumping everyone up about the idea of an exposition. Afterward, they came south to help organize the event. By November, all of Atlanta's leading businessmen are on board. Joseph E. Brown, Governor Colquitt, Samuel Inman, Mayor Calhoun, and they all pledge money in amounts from $1,000 to even $3,000. Nagel brings news that he secured $20,000 in pledges from Northern capitalists, and he suggests the idea of making it a stock company. So in turn, this becomes an investment and not just a bunch of donations. International Cotton Exposition Company is born, and officers are elected, Brown as president, Inman as treasurer, and Reichman as secretary. The first order of business was finding a location. So at first, they really wanted to have it at City Hall and the surrounding three acres. Um, This was downtown Atlanta. So thankfully, I don't know who it was, somebody pointed out that that was really limiting space-wise. They couldn't grow outward. Oglethorpe Park was the runner-up. It was actually the second park space the city of Atlanta had ever created right around 1870. It was no stranger to fairs and expositions, but it wasn't ideal. So today, this is the area of West Midtown or the Kingplow Arts Center. Um, But for early Atlanta, this was real far away from the city center, and the men wanted something more central. But the pros were that it was already set up for events like this, it was along the railroad track, which made it easier to bring in materials and exhibits, and the investors ended up a Ring, they bought the park space from the city for $15,000. The cool thing is that the city then took that money and reinvested it into more parks in other locations. The Gate City Railroad was chartered and tasked with helping get visitors to this faraway site, and then work was also done on the railroad tracks that would be bringing supplies. Two private rail cars were being constructed to carry President Garfield, who promised to visit the exposition when it opened, and the Marquis de Lorne, who was the Prime Minister of Canada. Sad side note, President Garfield was actually assassinated one month before the expo opened, so obviously didn't make it to Atlanta, um, and it would be another 15 years before a U.S. president visited our city. By September of 1881, applications to exhibit at the fair were totaled, and there was about 75,000 more square feet than they had. So cue the quick building frenzy. Um, They wanted to accommodate all the vendors and exhibitors. And speaking of buildings, so um, I'm going to put a historical photo up on social media, but there was a central building of the Cotton Exposition um, that was initially designed by a Boston firm of W.H.H. Whiting. But it would be the first real commission for local architect G.L. Norman. He was the one he expanded and really finalized the masterpiece. And Norman partnered up with a man named Wilton B. Weed. Now, based on the fact that this company never did a job after this. We don't know the details, but we can safely assume that the two got together, formed this business just to do this exposition work. As payment, they received just over $600 and one share of the International Cotton Exposition stock. 
G.L. Norman is probably my second favorite architect in Atlanta. Um, he did Fountain Hall over in Morris Brown and a ton of other structures. So it was really exciting for me to learn that this event was kind of his foothold into designing for the city and the people who lived here. The main building was shaped like an octagon placed in the center of the existing racetrack and it has four transepts coming out from the center. So basically it looks like a cross or the paper described it as a Greek cross. Some described it as ornate because it had large glass windows, but the purpose was really utilitarian and it was supposed to represent a model textile mill. Inside, it was filled with machinery that would show visitors how to manufacture cotton, silk, hemp, wool, and the whole thing is powered by three steam engines connected to power shafts in the ceiling. It would also be fully lit with electric lights along with the grounds so that visitors could come in the evening. But it was also built to be temporary and movable. And that's why a lot of people ask about these um, fairs and these expositions. They're like, well, where did the buildings go? But the idea was never for them to be permanent. They were going to be taken apart and then reassembled again in another fair or another city. Following in size was the art and industrial building. There was also a public comfort station or comfort building, basically bathrooms, a press pavilion, an exposition restaurant, and the exposition hotel. The hotel has a really interesting story. So the organizers of the event are really concerned about how Atlanta would handle housing these influx of visitors. Again, we're a tiny city. There's just not enough hotel rooms to do this. So they send out a public plea and their plan is rent out the rooms in your private homes throughout the city. Those who register would be pre-charged three to four dollars a day collected by the exposition company and then they would be assigned a house and then, you know, the owner of the house would get the money in hand when the person stayed. The thing is, the people of Atlanta were not up for it. And there's a lot of protests against this idea rolling in and it's pretty hilarious. So at the top of the list was this fear that this would make their home a boarding house. And no proper Atlanta family wanted to be associated with a boarding house. And the reply from city leaders cracked me up and they're like, no, no, this is nothing like a boarding house. See, boarding house's goal is money and your goal is Southern hospitality. Totally different. Then the Constitution, again, Henry Grady's running the Constitution, puts out an article saying, quote, the ladies of Atlanta have never held the good of Atlanta, the reputation of their homes, and the prosperity of their husbands so thoroughly in their own hands as they do at the present, end quote. Don't know how well that plan worked because eventually the hotel was built on site. And all of those buildings I mentioned above were designed um, by Norman and they were constructed by the firm of John Calvin Peck. Finally, October 5th arrives and opening day is set. 50 cents admission would gain entry and the units from Fort McPherson marched to the grounds joined by the 5th Artillery Band. An article in the paper that day um, details the full history of the city of Atlanta and what a wonderful place this is, no doubt directed at the thousands of new visitors that were picking up the paper that day. And another great fact about opening day is that the fair was not ready at all. There were half-constructed buildings, things were not working, um, there was discussions about postponing it and, you know, could they do that? Exposition leaders realized there was just no way to do this and save face and public relations, so they opened anyway and they kind of wrote like a please bear with us note in the paper. So let's step inside the fair. What would you, the visitor, see? You'd see cotton plants from around the world, add in machines associated with that. So planters, seed cleaners, there was even a model of the original Eli Whitney cotton gin. And they actually had a cotton gin contest. 
There were exhibits showcasing new stoves, sewing machines, organs, musical instruments, saddles, soda water dispensers, harnesses, plows, wagons, lace, you name it, it was there. And it came from all different states, North and South, and even two European countries. Judges awarded prizes for all sorts of things, like the best cotton seed cleaner machine and the best cotton specimen. That, by the way, went to the Jones Brothers of Herndon, Georgia. And there was a gold medal presented to Charles Evans, who is a manufacturer of artificial limbs. Um, apparently, he did incredible work with arms and legs. One of the more sensational visitors to the fair was General Sherman himself. Yes. The man responsible for the destruction of Atlanta not only pledged a few thousand dollars of his own money when the idea of the exposition first started, but then he also visited Atlanta to attend. He arrived on the Piedmont Airline Railroad and stayed at the Kimball House. And it was insisted by Sherman that he was attending as a private citizen, so you know, no special affairs, no special events. And the funny thing is that some other local papers tried to drum up controversy by declaring the day of his visit as Sherman's Day. And so the Constitution had to step in to calm the citizens of Atlanta down. They're like, set the record straight. You know, Sherman is here. He's visiting on his own. We are not honoring him. Don't worry. And you can see the beginnings of Atlanta's future motto, the city too busy to hate. Definitely starting here pretty early. We haven't talked about race yet, and I think it's assumed that an event in 1881 would be strictly segregated. The way that most expositions and fairs worked is that African Americans could attend on a specific date that was set aside. At the International Cotton Exposition of 1881, that was December 28th, three days before the closing of the whole event. The exposition company had formally invited Frederick Douglass, but he was unable to attend. Speeches were given by locals Bishop Warren and W.A. Pledger, and then the main speech was by Edward S. Morris, Commissioner of Liberia, who would tell the crowd about the colony of African Americans living there. The entire exposition lasted almost three months, closing at the end of December 1881. An estimate of 200,000 paid visitors had entered its gates, spending $2 million throughout the city. The merchants of downtown Atlanta alone reported sales of 30,000 during those three months. It was deemed a turning point and placing Atlanta at the forefront of the New South movement. It also led to the boom of northern mill investment. And so you'll see places like Whittier Mill and other mills that came to this area after that. By January of 1882, the entire lot of exposition buildings had been sold privately to Messrs. Rice and Richards for $25,000. The following month, the Exposition Cotton Mill Company was formed. The officers listed among the most prominent white men of the city, Inman, Peters, Howell, and Parrott, just to name a few. 10,000 cotton spindles produced a million miles of yard every month, along with woven cloth. And it was an operation until the late 40s, early 50s. And today, those buildings no longer exist. So I will talk about the exposition cotton mills again in the future because it did drive development off the west side of the city, and along with giving birth to many of the neighborhoods that are there today. So there you have it, the story of the 1881 International Cotton Exposition. A reminder that if you're enjoying the podcast, leave a rating or a review. Also, check out patreon.com. I have a link in the show notes uh, where you can support the podcast and also get some bonus content for doing so. I will be releasing the first listener Q&A episode next week, but remember, I will not be back until July 3rd. In the meantime, I hope everyone has a great weekend.